0: Supply the flames shall not hurt you. I only desire your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Go ahead and sit down, just listen to. Some words from Scripture. Psalm 18, the first few verses, says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Uh, let's just meditate on those great truths that the Lord is our rock, he's our fortress, he's our deliverer, and that we can call on him at any time. Uh, he's worthy of our praise, and he is our deliverer. But your name is a strong and mighty tower. Your name is a shelter. Power to say your name Father, we thank you that your name is a strong and mighty tower. Um, Lord, we just come to you today, each of us with our own uh, needs of our own failings, of our own, uh, just the realization that we need you, Father. Uh, We thank you so much for Jesus and for the price he paid for us. It's in his name we pray. I don't have a lot in the way of announcements. I did want to call your attention to an event that's coming up October 1st through the 3rd. Will Graham will be uh, sharing a message. There will also be some live music and... um, So if you want more information on this, I believe Bob has some flyers, door hangers that you can take for yourself or for anyone that you may want to invite. Um, It has a list of some of the different musical artists uh, that will be there. I do believe it's free of charge, right? Okay. So with that, kids, you may be dismissed uh, to the back. Uh, Meet your Sunday school teachers. Um, Bob is going to come up and share a quick ministry uh,
1: update with us. Thank you. Uh was asked if I could take a few minutes to just talk about the ministry I'm involved in at Freedom for Youth Ministries. And before I do that, I just want to read a couple verses from Colossians 1 verses 28 and 29. It says Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me." So, that was uh, an inspiring couple verses that Paul wrote about his work to, to present everybody mature in Christ, and I think of that a lot in the work that's done at Freedom for Youth Ministries, and I'm going to be interviewing myself. I got a set of questions, so the first question is to describe the ministry and the activities of it. So. Freedom for Youth Ministries has as its mission statement to empower youth across Iowa through the love of Jesus to break their current bondages, discover their God-given talents, and lead transformed lives. So there's quite a bit in there, but basically on the power of the gospel to see young people become what God has created them to be. And that's, that's the, the point of it. So who is served? We serve youth in 14 different locations around Iowa, and that's growing. Actually, we have outreaches in seven new communities as well, but we serve kindergarten through 12th grade plus 18 to 25-year-olds, and I'll just explain that a little bit, but K through 12 programs are after-school programs that the kids come to weekly near their school. They either get rides or, or can walk to those 14 locations, and when they come, they get some free time, get some help with homework if they need it, They have a Bible lesson, and now we're getting back to serving them a meal as well. So uh, we do that for the kindergarten through 12th graders, and then for 18 to 25-year-olds, we have an employment training program, which is kind of on the platform of a coffee shop and a construction services company. So in that context, the young adults can work and get paid. They also spend four hours a week in classroom learning uh, different life skills like a budget, showing up on time, creating resume, interviewing, communication skills, conflict resolution, things like that to help them grow in their maturity both in the workplace and as individuals. And so those, those two programs are directed towards uh, 18 to 25-year-olds. I should say, too, that our programs have basically four pillars, or I like to say a, a foundation and three pillars, but the foundation is faith. Uh, We do believe that the only way for real transformation in an individual's life is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we want to make sure that everybody hears that. And then we focus on employability, um, education, and leadership skills as well to uh, develop in those young people. So the next question is, how did I get involved? Well, I started as a volunteer five or six years ago, Uh, volunteered For my daughter, Caitlin, in the program in Carlisle, working with uh, WizKids, K-5, through in Carlisle as a volunteer. So where and how does this ministry provide opportunity for gospel witness? It's built into the program. So we, we have a curriculum that is centered in the Word of God, and volunteers that are working directly with the kids are expected to share the truth of the gospel directly with the kids and mentor them in that and teach them the gospel how does it differ from maybe secular nonprofits that do similar things as i said we really believe the foundation of transformation is the gospel of jesus christ so people can improve without the gospel they can achieve earthly goals but for a lasting and eternal difference in their life you need the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transformation that brings. So where and how can others get involved? Well, there's all kinds of ways, I'll mention three. First of all, we really covet your prayers for the ministry. The employees need prayers as they plan and carry out programs, the volunteers, which is the majority of the workers involved in the ministry is the volunteers Uh, and the young adults and the children need prayers too, that the gospel would take root in their hearts and that that transformation that God seeks to work in their life would, would be accomplished. The second way you can help is volunteer, and there's all kinds of ways to volunteer. If, if you'd like to work with kids, there's all kinds of opportunities. We have a shortage of people who can come and just spend time in a small group with kids. You know, full disclosure, you need a lot of patience. These kids aren't aren't really here to just sit quietly necessarily and listen, so uh, that, that challenges your patience. But we need meals now, so all the meals are provided by volunteers, and there's sign-ups on our website. If you want more information about that, let me know. And we also have a number of people that come to our home office and campus on Hickman and do projects around campus, whether it's like building improvements, landscaping, any number of things that we can use help with. And it is it is very much a volunteer powered ministry. Um, there's, there's no way the staff at Freedom for Youth could do everything without the involvement of the volunteers. And then finally, there are opportunities to give. Freedom for Youth does not take government money because we don't want any strings attached to what we can and can't say to the kids and teach the kids. And so the vast majority of the ministry costs are covered by individuals and churches who donate to the ministry. So that opportunity is there as well.
2: I asked Bob to stay up here. I'm going to pray for Bob uh, in his ministry at Freedom for Youth. And I'm going to ask Bob after the service, if you just kind of hang out in the lobby and people can talk to you more if they have questions. Father, thank you for our brother Bob and for the whole staff and all the volunteers at Freedom for Youth and the ministry ministries that they're involved in uh, seeking to reach young people uh, take them away from their, uh, the, the junk that's in their lives and the hardships and difficulties and point them to Christ bring about transformation through your Spirit's work in their lives. I pray for your blessing on the ministry and ask for your grace and encouragement for Bob and the whole staff and team. As I know, it's been a really, really rough year with all that's gone on. I just pray you give them encouragement in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. One more thing, uh, there is a sign-up sheet out on the thing. Uh, Freedom for Youth is hosting their annual banquet, right? Tuesday night? Yes. What time does it start? Six Six o'clock, six o'clock. okay. It's at the, there's a conference center across from the airport uh, south on Fleur. If you don't know, you can go to the Freedom for Youth website. But our church bought, bought a table, and we're looking for people to fill that table. So if you would be interested in helping financially support and prayer, prayerfully support the ministry, Sign up there, and if there's not room there, then add your name again, and uh, I'll take my name off, and then I'll go sit at another table, okay? So, good. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate that. Uh, We have, uh, you know, what Bob didn't say was that Bob left his corporate world uh, working and uh, felt like God was leading him into full-time vocational Christian ministry. I like to make that distinction. All of us who name the name of Jesus are in full-time ministry. Uh, not all of us are in full-time vocational ministry. We're not all getting financially reimbursed for what we do. But uh, just want to welcome you here this morning. If you are here as a guest for the first time, if you're listening online, you can't do this. But if you're here as a guest and there is an extra flap in the bulletin, if you would fill that out and tear it off and put it in the offering box, which is on the welcome table as you come in, I'd sure appreciate that gratefully. Let's pray. Father... I thank you that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they are saved. As we pause now to worship you through the study of your word, I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts and each of us would be open to what you want to say to us, that you would be working in us. And we thank you for your word and ask that you would help us to receive it for what it is, not the word of men, but the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've received in the mail several solicitations for extended vehicle warranties. And uh, I have uh, routinely, without exception, taken them and shredded them. Because the benefit for me does not outweigh the cost. Uh, I'm, you know... Forsaking some cost, I guess, or, you know, there's some benefit, but there's, the cost just isn't worth it to me, and so I don't, I don't mess with it. Each of us makes those decisions every day, financially. But there's a, another cost-benefit analysis that I think we need to be take, thinking about, and that is, uh, what are we thinking about the cost-benefit benefit analysis about our relationship with God? You see, God also made an offer. It wasn't an extended warranty offer, but it was an offer of His Son. And in that offering, he says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. John chapter 3, verse 16. And Jesus, as we come to this point in our study of Matthew, uses another parable in a series of three parables to kind of give us a picture of the cost-benefit analysis of accepting or rejecting the offer that God the Father made when he sent his son, Jesus. See, Jesus is coming to this point, and the people that are around him are increasingly skeptical of his mission and hostile to him in his person. And so what he does is he tells them the consequences of their hardened unbelief. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46, Jesus confronts them and all who are like them, hardened in unbelief, with the real cost of rejecting Jesus. What's at stake? It's not an extended warranty offer. It's an eternal life offer. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Or if you have your device or reach under the seat in front of you, you can grab a Bible there. In Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to read, beginning with verse 33 through 46, this, the second parable in this series, the three parables that Jesus uses to take those who are hardened in their unbelief to task, really. Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers. Now, if you're reading the ESV or another version, it'll say tenants, okay? Probably. All right. And he went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves, and they beat one, and they killed another, and they stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But When the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent out the vineyard to, another, to other vine growers or other tenants who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Four stages in the parable. Four stages in the parable that highlight for us the, the reality, the real cost of rejecting the Son. And the first one is in this section, verses 33 through 39, where we see the reality of rejecting the Son. It's what happened there. Jesus is addressing the religious leaders in the temple. Okay? These are the the people who are in charge, and he's challenging them. These are the people who doubted his authority, and they denied his divine identity. But he's doing so in the presence of everybody else. So you have to get, uh, you don't have to, but I get a scene that here's the religious leaders. Jesus is talking to them, but there's a whole bunch of other people standing around or sitting around, and they're listening. Some of you have watched uh, newscasts where they have like panels and they have like, you know, people from different perspectives and they kind of say, okay, now give this person this time and everybody's vying trying to get the same amount of time to speak. Well, Jesus wasn't really about equal time, okay? He was speaking with divine authority and in the temple he spoke with real authority not concerned about if everybody else was getting an equal chance. And what follows is a true-to-life story that reveals a spiritual reality. That's a parable, okay? It's a true-to-life story that reveals a a reality to us. Verse 33, Jesus said there was this guy, who, a landowner, and he he planted a vineyard, and he built a wall around it, and then he dug a, a place for him to... Squish out the grape juice, you know, and then he built a tower and he prepared it. And this comes straight from Isaiah chapter 5. It's a parable about a parable or a parable that uses a parable. It's Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, reveals that this is where it's drawn from, okay? And so in this parable, unmistakably, as you draw it from Isaiah, God is the landowner, okay? That's the point he makes in Isaiah. And the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, are the tenants, the vine growers. This is Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. And read it on the screen. Okay? For the vineyard of the Lord of the armies is the house of Israel. Stop. That's it. Okay? This is Isaiah chapter 5, verse verse 2. The vine growers are the tenants who mistreat, who ruthlessly mistreat and murder the, the slaves that are sent are the religious leaders. And in our story, it's directed to the chief priests and the scribes and, and the elite in the, in the temple, okay? These are the people. They're, they're, the owner, the fruit that he wants is righteous conduct. That's what he expects. When we were in Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20, we talked about those people who you, you will know them by their fruit, the fruit of righteousness. Jesus always talked to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter three, you bring forward the fruit of righteousness. That's what he's talking about. So that's the fruit that comes. And the slaves or the servants are the Old Testament prophets who spoke of the, called the people to repent of their sin and to authentic righteous living. So those are the players there. What's interesting is the long history of the obstinate rebellion against God's message and his messengers is depicted for us in, in this parable as chronicled by the religious leaders, is chronicled by the fact that he keeps sending slaves. He keeps sending them. He keeps sending them. I don't know if you, I circled it in my Bible, if you are in verse 36. It says, again, he sent slaves. Again, he sent slaves. And he sent the first set of slaves and the second set of slaves and they did the same thing to each one of them. They, 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 they stoned them. They killed them. They beat them. And they're, they, they, they scandalously mistreated them. And shamefully acted towards them. I mean, this was just like, you never heard of this in in their context and culture, even though they had owners and slaves. The tenants would never treat the slaves of the landowner like this at all. It would never be heard of whatsoever. And so their obstinance of these religious leaders throughout the history of Israel stands against God's patient benevolence as evidenced by the arrival of the repeated servants. This is a huge point, I think, in the parable. It's the patience of God. The patience of God. He keeps sending them. Will you you turn? Will you come to me? Will you do this? And then finally, what does he do? In the ultimate act of benevolence, he sends his son. And what is he thinking? The culmination of the rebellion was against God, is portrayed by the killing of the landowner's son. Now, why did he send his son? Look at verse 37. It says, but afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they'll respect my son. They didn't respect my slaves, but they'll respect my son. Surely they will. What, did the re- what was the reaction of the tenants to the son? <laughs> well, we know, they killed him. And we'll take the inheritance, which was really kind of stupid because that wasn't possible anyway. They're not, they're not going to get the inheritance. You know, they, they wouldn't get that, but it was foolish. So there's uncharacteristic violence on the part of the tenants and there's uncommon patience on the part of the landowner that set up the punchline of the whole parable. it, it, It communicates the importance of the parable, how great a force there is to it, because you would never have this sort of treatment of the uh, by the tenants of the landowner's slaves and, and son. And then you would never have the set of patience by the landowner. And so what happens is, we see is that historically, uh, he spoke, Jesus did, historically of the slaves, the prophets, over the course of history, coming to God's people, particularly their leaders, offering them repentance and a right relationship with God. And then we see him, not them prophetically, in in interjecting himself into the place of the son in the parable. So Jesus becomes the son. And the parable then becomes a snapshot of the gospel. It's a snapshot of God's plan of redemptive history. All through history, he's been wooing and, and trying to get the people to turn and repent and come to him with righteous living. And they reject, reject, reject until they kill the son. So that's the rejection of the son. And sadly, many still reject him. And that's the sorrow in the parable, the rejection of the son. The next phase moves in a little bit further as we look at verses 40 to 42. And this is, we see the response to rejecting the son. What's their response as they hear the parable? What do they, what, what do they respond? The religious leaders, they just, they're getting caught up in the story. They kind of like this story. This is kind of a good story. It's like, wow, there's a lot of tension here. Like a good, good movie, you know, about uh, the, the way things are going. And so they get drawn into the question, further into it, and then Jesus hits them with this question. And we actually see two notable responses in the follow-up. But I, look at the question in verse 40. Jesus said to them, "Therefore, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm going to read verse 40 and then the question in verse 41. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? What will he do to those tenants? What do you think he's going to do? Well, lays it out. There's a couple of responses. The religious leaders, first of all, the religious leaders, they, they express righteous indignation. Yeah, he should be upset, right? Because the owner's been patient, and the the, the tenants have been belligerent and obnoxious. So it's a no-brainer. And and we kind of get that. I mean, on August 27th, 2021, uh, 13 of our uh, finest military uh, service members' lives were taken by a, a suicide bomber in Afghanistan. And I don't think there's any American that didn't think oh, I know what we should do. You know, the, 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 the sense of justice is, is naturally occurring. And so they're naturally understanding what should happen, all right? And now what do they say? Verse 41. And then they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard and other vi- to other vine who will pay him the proceeds at the proper time. Now, I don't understand always how my mind works, but my mind went to another story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he says to David, there's this story. There was a rich man who had a guest that came to him and this rich man decided that he was going to take this this poor man's pet sheep and sacrifice it so he could feed the rich man's friend. And David's like, that guy should get his, you know, he should get it. You know, this is, this is horrible. He's rich. He, he has all kinds of sheep. But he took the little, little sheep, the pet from the other guy and, and, ki- and killed it so he could feed his friend. This is not right. Well, same thing's going on here. It's a trap. Jesus had him, right? He had him besides. We, we can easily decide justice. They could easily decide justice, you know. Their sense of justice wasn't flawed, but the focus was in the wrong place. They had the right sense of justice, but incorrectly focused. Ironically, the justice which they demanded was the justice they deserved. The justice they demanded was the justice they deserved. I mean, we're, we're quick. I, it doesn't take me long to uh, think about this Dr. Larry Nasser and this whole USA Gymnastics, women's gymnastic hassle. It doesn't take me long to figure out that justice needs to be served. It doesn't take me long, you know, it doesn't take you long to figure that out. And we can name other names of people that, you know, we, we think uh, justice needs to happen. But here's the question. Two questions, actually. Do we understand the, the, the justice that we deserve? And do we understand the justice that all who reject Jesus deserve? Not always, not always. The second response is here. The son, so first of all, the chief priests and leaders, they, they, they express righteous indignation. Well, how does the son respond? Jesus, the son. Jesus the son exposes the religious leaders' spiritual ignorance. He re- exposes it by revealing his identity and their responsibility. Now he's beginning to turn the tables. He's driving home the parable. He's beginning to uh, point, point things back at them. And uh, Jesus said to them, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? Let's stop there. <laughs> the Old Testament. This is scribes and Pharisees. These are the teachers of the law. Oh, oh, by the way, you guys never read the scriptures? And then he, he goes on to cite the, this, this scripture. Well, oh, you never read the scriptures? You, unmistakably pointing to them. They knew who he was talking to. He wasn't talking about the crowd. He's talking, did you never read the scriptures? You, scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law. When I was in junior high, uh, we had a, Our football coach was kind of a a notoriously uh, stiff guy. I mean, he was just like no-nonsense, all business. He was old school all the way. And we had a guy in my class, uh, Mr. Miller. Uh, He wasn't a Mr. then, but he was a kid like me in junior high. And he would wear his his wristwatch to football practice. Uh, It's all right, you don't know anything about football, but uh, that's not cool, you know. It's kind of like wearing a fanny pack Uh, you know, to a a millennial, a a young person's convention. It's just like, mm, not happening. So, our football coach, I remember on numerous occasions, he'd go, Mr. Miller, what time is it? He was mocking and making fun of Mr. Miller. But Mr. Miller knew who he was talking to. Everybody knew who he was talking to. And Jesus says, you, have you never read the scriptures? And then he cites... Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23, which is part of the the Jewish Passover hymn book called the Halil, which means praise to God, which they sang every Passover. It's Psalms 113 to Psalm 118, and they sang it every Passover. So it wasn't just that they had never read it. Everybody there would have read it. It's like, And maybe you don't understand this, but it's like going to a person who grew up in the Lutheran church and say, have you never recited the Lord's Prayer? Or somebody who grew up in a Reformed church and say, have you never recited the Apostles' Creed? Have you never read the Apostles' Creed? Jesus is in deliberately condescending and deliberately insulting. I mean, he's like, you know, they're like the... The emperor has no clothes on right now. I mean, it's like, whew, okay, he, he's, he's really exposing them for, for their, their lack of understanding, okay? And it's from this very same psalm that the crowds were quoting in their designation of Jesus as the Messiah, the messianic title, the Son of God, back when he entered into Jerusalem, just a couple days prior hosanna to the son of david hosanna from psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 and so there's a lot of freight in this psalm that he brings to the college. the religious hypocrites to whom jesus spoke were all too familiar with the text but they didn't understand the truth of the text Every one of us who grows up in the church has that same danger. We become familiar with the text, but we don't understand the truth that's in the text. Jesus deliberately applies it to their lives. (laughs) He says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected. Became the chief cornerstone. And this is a reference according to Peter in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 and 12. Okay, I think, yeah, let's see if we can see that. He says, this is Peter. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by his, this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone, speaking of Jesus Christ, not the man. He's the stone which was rejected by you, the builders of God's kingdom, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved. Jesus is the cornerstone rejected by men, his crucifixion. You know. And he is rejected by men. He became the chief cornerstone by virtue of his resurrection. This is what he's saying. And so, Jesus makes it very clear to them that they had rejected him. They had rejected him in the same way that the tenants had rejected the son. It's, it's a, it's a, it draws it right in there. And these very leaders, were in fact going to fulfill this actually as some sort of a prophetic announcement because a few days later, what do they do? They incite the crowd to do exactly what Jesus said you are doing. Crucify him. Crucify him. They incite the crowd and they get their wish. Remember back in Matthew chapter 12 verse 14, they sought to destroy him. And they did. They destroyed him. And but notice here. It's part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan. As willing instruments of, of God's redemptive plan, that's what they were doing. They were fulfilling it. Because they said back in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, Jesus told him, he says, I'm going to go up and, and I'll, I'll suffer the chief priests and the scribes, I'll suffer under their hands and then I'll, I'll be crucified and buried and rise the third day. And Jesus said that would happen. And Jesus is kind of like Here, like Nathan, the prophet, was to David. You're the man. Scribes and Pharisees, you're it. David, I tell you the story about this rich guy who took the little man's pet ewe lamb and sacrificed it for the rich visitor. David, that's you because you took Uriah's wife and you committed adultery and then you killed him. And Jesus is saying, you guys... You crucify. You're going to crucify me. You're the one who rejects the son. He's bringing it home to them in a very powerful way. Jesus is the only way. You're the man, the rejected stone, the crucified Jesus becomes the cornerstone, the resurrected Jesus, and Peter confirmed it again in 1 Peter chapter two, verses six through eight. When Jesus, Peter says this: For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a choice stone. A precious cornerstone. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. This precious value then is for you who believe. Stop there. What precious value? It's a precious value of life, eternal. But, he goes on, for unbelievers a stone which the builders rejected, this became the, the chief cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and they, for they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word and in this way were also disappointed. So you believe in Jesus you have a precious value. You reject Jesus, you're going to be you're tripping over him, you're stumbling, you're going to be crushed. That's what he says. He says to them, this, this, this thing, this came about. Verse 42, notice this. This came about. I'm in verse 42 of Matthew 21. This came about. What came about? The death and resurrection of Jesus came about as part of God's redemptive plan so that all who believe would be forgiven and all those who reject would suffer eternal, suffer eternal torment. So what do we got to believe? That's it. Believe. And you're forgiven, what do you believe? We're all messed up. Every one of us is messed up, and every one of us is all messed up. And because of that, we deserve God's wrath. We're really no better than the chief priests and scribes. I'll get it out. No better than them, really. Initially, in our, in our being, we're rejecting God. But God, in His mercy, did send His Son, Jesus. And He died on the cross. And his blood was shed so that all who would put their faith or their trust in him would be forgiven and have eternal life and a new life with God. But each of us must first personally accept it. Just to hear about it, to know the truth is not to believe the truth. To believe the truth, we must personally surrender our hearts and souls to him. He becomes Lord and Master. Not just an afterthought, not just a nice guy that we carry along with us. And No, he must be it. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 42. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our sight. Marvelous. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. My sins, they are Many. His mercy is more. First time I went to the Grand Canyon, I saw the Grand Canyon and I went, wow. It's marvelous. I know I've showed you the pictures of the Grand Canyon before, but it, it's, it's worth it. It's like, wow. It's more marvelous. It's more marvelous that the Son of God came and died, sinless Son of God, so that we could be rescued and delivered from our sin, more marvelous. Christ would die and rise again so that we could profit from his pain. We could be forgiven. And First Peter says, those who believe will not be disappointed. Disappointed in the world the way it is right now? I am. It's <laughs> a mess. But those who believe will not be disappointed ultimately. We will not be disappointed. I was reading the other day in Ezekiel chapter 20, and I think it's verse 44, he says, this this is how you'll know that I am Lord, because I I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your deeds. He dealt with us for his name's sake. Remember, mercy, 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 grace, grace, grace. Not according to our deeds. He offers us salvation. Those who believe will not be disappointed. But as we saw earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, those who don't believe, whoa, they will be disappointed. Everyone who rejects him is doomed. And so I ask you this morning, have you heard the truth but not believed the truth? Do you know the text but don't know the truth? Because if you do, you're right where the Pharisees and scribes are chief priests, and my call to you is don't don't stay there. Because God is calling you. Don't reject the Son. Your heart is corrupt. But if you ask for forgiveness and turn and trust in Christ, you'll be saved. So there is this, this reality of rejecting the Son. Then there's a response to rejecting the Son. Now we see the result of rejecting the Son. Verse 42, therefore, links us back and points us back to what these what did the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees say should happen to the, the tenants? Hmm. Now Jesus applies it to them in, verses, in verse 40, 40, uh, 43 and verse 44. He says, There's removal and replacement. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Now we need to be careful here. Who's the you? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And it's my understanding that the you coincides with the rebellious tenants. Okay? not the vineyard, so that this is not a rejection of the nation of Israel. It's a rejection of the religious leaders who are pulling them apart. Jesus is telling the Jewish religious leaders to whom the parable applies that their role as mediators of God's work and and authority is terminated, and it's going to be given to somebody else. Somebody else is going to take over for you because you guys are leading them astray. That's the essence of it, as, as I've done in reading and Carson, D.A. Carson and David Turner. It's kind of a conglomeration of the summary that they give it. And they're given to a nation producing the fruit of it. It doesn't refer to a country. He's not going to give it,, you know, the, the, the kingdom of God to a country. He's going to give it to a people, most likely to those in Israel whose lives demonstrated a righteousness that exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, unless your righteousness exceeds this, that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. And that was commensurate with a, a life that was truly repentant. This is the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those people, they're going to inherit the kingdom. They're going to be the leaders of the kingdom, which exceeds it. And so I'm going to quote David Turner here. He says it's a transfer of leadership from the fruitless Jerusalem, leadership from the fruitless. Jerusalem establishment to the fruitful Christian and Jewish community of Matthew's day, led by the apostles. These are the people in the first century, the nation deserving the fruit of it, who would be leading the charge in, 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 that, in, in the nation of Israel. But it's not the nation, it's the people of Israel that would eventually, led by the apostles, establish the church of Christ. These, this is the nation. They're the faithful remnant of Israel extending their mission to all nations everywhere. First Peter chapter two ten it says you're a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people of God's own possession that you might proclaim uh, the mysteries of Him who called you out of darkness into His light. Okay, might not be exact quote, but it's close. Okay, so then there's ruination. There's there's replacement. Then there's ruination. And notice the text says that uh, verse forty four and he who falls on this stone. So if you trip over Jesus, we'll be broken to pieces. It's unbelievers tripping on Jesus. Jesus is is this. Jesus is a a moral teacher. Jesus is a nice man. Jesus was a, a really good prophet. Jesus was some sort of a good role model. No. Jesus is the Son of God the Savior of the world. Anything less than that, you're tripping. Maybe you're tripping on, on something else too, but you're, you're tripping on Jesus, okay? And it is wrong. But if you say he's not the Savior, your life will be shattered. That's what he says. By God's wrath, all right? And on whomever it, Jesus falls, it will, be, it will scatter him like dust, into insignificance and irrelevance. Now, won't you hear me straight? He's not speaking about annihilation, okay? He's speaking about spiritual ruination, okay? Spiritual damnation, spiritual separation from God, scattered. What's amazing to me, if you take verse 44, and you went back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 35, remember the the big picture? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this big image that he saw Jesus is the stone in Daniel chapter 2, verse 35, who crushes and shatters the feet of that image. The imagery here is all over the Old Testament. It comes straight from Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 28, and Daniel chapter 2. Spiritual ruination, destruction, not annihilation, is what's taught. And so that's why it's urgent for all of us to consider it. This is the plight of those who reject Christ. And if you're one of those people, my call to you is turn and trust him. Or this is what awaits. There's one final stage here. And we see the reason for rejecting the son. It turns the spotlight on why. In verse 45, the text says this, And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, and they they understood that he was speaking about them. Wow. They were disobedient sons. Remember last week? Oh yeah, we'll go we'll go work and then they bail. They're the disobedient sons who don't deserve to get into the kingdom. Okay? But they're clamoring instead to kill the son and take the goods. They were greedy. They were hungry for power, for influence, intoxicated on their position and, and want control, not humbled, not, not, not ready to acknowledge God's sovereignty. They were entrenched in their rebellion. They were the ruthless tenants who rejected God's messengers, they rejected God's message, they rejected God's Messiah, builders who rejected the stone. Crucified Jesus, and he would become the cornerstone upon which every spiritual life of any significance is built. The rejection of Jesus excluded them from the kingdom and destined them for destruction. They did, uh, how did they respond? When they found that out. I mean, this is what Jesus did. You were taking the kingdom away from him. So they're going, wow, we're in deep trouble now. No, no. Read verse 46. And when they sought to seize him, They feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. There's no repentance here. There's only rebellion. There's no recognition. Their corruption was on display. Jesus and God's wrath was on the way. No acknowledgement of their own wickedness, no acknowledgement of their need for repentance, and no reception of the Messiah. They couldn't be any more stiff and hardened in their rebellion not repentance in their pride and not their penitence. Hmm. Is that you this morning? I know the truth about Jesus, but I'm not really willing to accept the truth of Jesus in my life. I'm too stubborn. I'm too rebellious. I want to reject him. I hope not. I hope that's not you. I hope it isn't you. Because the Bible reminds us, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know what it means for God to be opposed to you? He's at war with you. I'm pretty sure I know who wins. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a great fall, the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 16, 18. These religious hypocrites were so worried about people, they, worried, uh, they, didn't, they couldn't embarrass themselves in front of the people because they thought Jesus was the prophet. Well, they knew better than the religious leaders. And so what are the lessons we bring from here? I, what are the lessons we draw from here? There's probably a lot of them. I've got three, uh, maybe four, three that I want to uh, highlight. First of all, we, we see the gracious provision of God. As I read through this parable, it just strikes me how patient and loving God is that in spite of rebellion and rebellion and rebellion, he keeps wooing, he keeps offering, he keeps giving the opportunity for people to repent. So help us not forget that. That if you're in Christ, it's because of the mercy of God. It's because of his patience, his wooing. He didn't stamp you out the first time you rejected him. He kept coming, he kept coming, he kept coming. And believe me, he wants to do that for the people in our lives that we want to know Jesus. He's after them. And he wants them to come to the kingdom. If he didn't want it, if he just he could have just squished us like a bug the first time. No, it's the marvelous love grace of our loving Lord. You know, I saying? he prepared the vineyard. He took care of the vineyard. He kept sending workers into the vineyard to, to get the produce, and finally he sent his son. He sent his son so that we could live. And he's still making that offer today. If you haven't trusted him yet, it's not too late yet, I'd invite you to trust him. Secondly, we see the the gruesome pride of men. You see how stubborn we can be? As you see these people, even when they're shown by the God whose authority they're always questioning, Who gave you this authority? Where do you get your authority? And who gave it to you? And where does it come from? And all this stuff. And yet he's the son of God. And they're brought face to face with their own corruption. And what do they do? He's the problem. See the sinfulness of our self-centered rebellion. with, With opportunity, I remind you this, with opportunity comes responsibility. God is patient. But his patience has limits. With every opportunity comes responsibility and accountability. And finally, uh, we're guaranteed punishment of sin. All who believe in Jesus are redeemed to new life. All who reject Jesus are condemned to eternal death, separation from God. I like the way O'Donnell puts it this way. Don't try his patience, trust His Son. Receive Christ today because we don't know if we have tomorrow. As we take time to take the bread and the cup, we remember the rejected Son and the risen Son who died in our place to make it possible for all who believe to be forgiven and live eternally. If you're a believer, it's time to rejoice, to reflect and say, yeah, I deserve the judgment, but by God's grace and only by God's grace, I receive mercy. If you're not a believer, I just can't urge you enough to turn from your sin and to trust in this Savior so that you can live forever. Let's pray. Father, As we listen to these songs, I pray that you'd use it as a time for us as believers to reflect, to confess any known sin and get our heart right with you before we take the symbols of your sacrifice, the bread and the cup, the juice. I ask that if you are working in the heart of anyone here this morning, I pray that that person would not resist you any longer, but that they would turn, repent, and cry out to you, asking for forgiveness and claiming the promise that you will give them the life that you've promised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.